Live from New York, I'm Allison Kosick. I'm in for Julia Chatterley today. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Rising tensions, hundreds injured in clashes in Jerusalem. Pipeline hack, U.S. oil supplies disrupted after a cyber attack. And Doge dive, the cryptocurrency tumbles after Musk makes jokes. It's Monday. Let's make a move. This is CNN Breaking News. We begin with breaking news. Tensions in Jerusalem are high at this hour following weeks of clashes between Israeli police and Palestinians fighting from over the weekend. It's spilled into today as the city prepares for its annual Jerusalem Day March. One flashpoint for the unrest, the possible evictions of some Palestinian families from their homes. CNN's Hadass Gold joins me now live from Jerusalem. So this is, uh, I think, the third straight day of violence, some of the worst that we've seen. Yeah, Allison, it's definitely some of the highest levels of tension that Jerusalem has seen in several years. More than 300 Palestinians and nine uh, Israeli police officers were injured in clashes at the Al-Aqsa compound earlier today. The third straight day of violence in a city that is just absolutely boiling with tension. We're seeing multiple videos from the Al-Aqsa compound showing stun grenades being uh, launched into the Al-Aqsa mosque itself, as well as Palestinians throwing rocks and other items at the police officers there. Tensions have been mounting in Jerusalem for weeks. These are not the first clashes we've seen in the last several weeks. But a flashpoint has definitely been what you mentioned, which is the possible eviction of some Palestinian families, some of which have been living there for generations in a neighborhood called Sheikh Jarrah in East Jerusalem. And a Supreme Court hearing that was supposed to take place on those possible evictions was postponed. It was supposed to take place today, but it was postponed. Uh, and though it's been calm here for the past few hours since those clashes earlier today, officials are very concerned for what can happen later today because uh, Israelis are starting to gather for the March for Jerusalem Day. What's known here as Jerusalem Day is the day that Israel marks when it took control of the Western Wall and we're expecting tens of thousands of Israelis to march through the old city of Jerusalem. And though police announced that they will not allow Jews to, to go to the Temple Mount, what's also known as Haram al-Sharif or the Noble Sanctuary, it's a place sacred to both Jews and Muslims. Police say they will not allow Jews to go there. There is still a lot of concern of what can happen during this march because we are expecting that they will be walking through some of the Muslim parts of the old city. Now, there have been uh, concerns, condemnation statements rolling in from around the world, countries around the world, as well as places like the United Nations, the European Union, and even the Pope about what's going on here in Jerusalem. Uh, We know that the White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan spoke with his Israeli counterpart yesterday, expressing concern over those possible evictions in Sheikh Jarrah, as well as condemning some rockets that were launched from Gaza overnight. But, Allison, Jerusalem is just incredibly tense today, and it really feels like we are standing on the edge of some sort of eruption. Politically, Hadass, what are the wider implications of this, especially with uh, Netanyahu's efforts uh, for, uh, to, to form his own government, or form a new government, rather? Um, could, could an election sort of, uh, a fifth election be coming? 
Well, Netanyahu had to hand back the mandate to form a new government. It was given to uh, Yair Lapid, who's the leader of a centrist party who is currently trying, uh, he's in negotiations, especially with the leader of a small right-wing party called Naftali Bennett. And a source close to the negotiations does tell me that they are optimistic they will be able to form a government within the next week or, week or two. And although those, no, those negotiations are ongoing, and we may see some developments on that soon, without question, the tension, the violence that has been taking place in Jerusalem is completely overshadowing the political, excuse me, the political discussion that is taking place right now. Like I said, officials are very concerned over what these next few hours could bring as this march is expected to take place. Okay, well, thank you for keeping us posted on everything. Stay safe out there and come back to us if you have any further developments. Hadas Gold, thanks very much. All right, let's get right to our top business stories. U.S. stocks look set for a mixed start to the trading week and uh, with the Dow and the S&P 500 on track to hit fresh records. The major averages rallied on Friday despite the disappointing April U.S. employment report, which showed just 266,000 new jobs added to the economy last month. Investors believe the Fed might wait longer to pull monetary support if economic data continues to point to an uneven recovery. It's a lower start to Europe's trading week, with stocks still near records there. Asia closed mostly higher. But Chinese tech names like Alibaba fell. Beijing has announced new moves to curb the power of its tech giants by banning some mobile app notifications. Let's get right to our drivers. Oil prices are climbing as one of the largest pipelines in the U.S. remains offline following a cyber attack. The Colonial Pipeline supplies 45 percent of the U.S. East Coast's fuel. That's according to its operator. A source tells CNN that a criminal group originating in Russia is believed to be to be behind the hack. Matt Egan joins me live now. So uh, we are seeing prices in the oil market move higher, but the impact overall is a, is a little limited. But we know how supply and demand works. Uh, it's not expected to remain limited for long if this uh, continues much longer. Yeah, that's right, Allison. Um, the big question, of course, is timing. Uh, the longer this lasts, the bigger the impact will be on consumers, on businesses, and the economy at large. And you know, to your point, this cyber attack is impacting uh, one of, if not the most important pipeline in the entire country. The Colonial Pipeline delivers nearly half of all the diesel and gasoline to the East Coast, and it's delivering it um, to the Northeast, which is the least energy independent part of the entire country. Now, gasoline prices, uh, they stand at $2.97 uh, a gallon in the United States. Um, that's up more than 60% from a year ago. American drivers haven't faced $3 gas, which is a you know psychologically important level um, in seven years. Uh, we are seeing gasoline futures move up one and a half percent this morning. And I want to read you a key line from RBC Capital Markets. They're warning that depending upon the duration, this supply shock could leave the region with widespread fuel shortages. Now, the pipeline operator says that Sunday, it's Four main lines remained offline, but some of the smaller lines between the terminals and delivery points, they're now now operational. The Department of Transportation is also responding here. They've issued an emergency exemption that's going to let truck drivers uh, transporting gasoline, diesel, and jet fuel work uh, longer days. Uh, Allison, the last point uh, here is that, you know, this is, of course, coming at a, a delicate moment for the world economy. You know, a year ago, there was too much supply of the stuff that makes the economy run uh, because everything was shut down by this once-in-a-century pandemic. Uh, but now that vaccinations have picked up, uh, travel restrictions, 
restrictions are going away. We're seeing the economy boom and supply actually cannot keep up with demand. That's why we've seen shortages of everything from steel uh, to lumber, chlorine, uh, and even workers. And Allison, right now, we might have to add gasoline to that list of shortages. Oh, yeah. It's interesting how the tables can turn so quickly. What more can you tell us about the group behind this hack? Well, we do know that it is a, uh, it is a criminal group that originates in Russia, and uh, they are believed to be responsible uh, for these attacks. And, and it's believed to be a ransomware uh, attack that has actually shut down production here. Um, but what I think is really important is kind of the, the, the big big picture takeaways here. Uh, This is another reminder of how vulnerable our critical infrastructure is, uh, both to physical attacks, to weather events, and to cyber. I mean, think about it. Just earlier this year, we had the deep freeze in Texas that caught um, people off guard. We had Uh, We had uh, natural gas, coal, and wind facilities were all shut down. Millions of people in Texas and the region were left in the dark. Uh, Tragically, people died. Uh, In 2019, there were the uh, attacks on the Aramco facilities. That sent oil prices skyrocketing. And it was only because they were able to get production back on so quickly uh, that prices actually came down. Um, and, and now we have this incident as well, which is another reminder of, of how uh, energy facilities, but also financial facilities like exchanges and banks, uh, they're all vulnerable to the cyber threat. And it feels like the world economy has kind of dodged some bullets here. And, and we have to hope that this ends up being a short-term event here. But um, it is another reminder of the vulnerability here, Allison. Okay, Matt Egan, okay. thanks for putting all of that in perspective for us. Thank you. To the moon or not? The joke cryptocurrency Dogecoin is trying to recover from a big drop following Elon Musk's hosting of Saturday Night Live, the U.S. comedy show. He tweeted after the show that a SpaceX satellite mission to the moon next year is, quote, paid in or paid for in Doge. Earlier in his comments about the meme crypto asset on SNL, well, that prompted a big sell off. Listen. It's the future of currency. It's an unstoppable financial vehicle that's going to take over the world. I get that, but uh, what is it, man? (laughs) I keep telling you, it's a cryptocurrency you can trade for conventional money. Oh, so it's a hustle. Yeah, it's a hustle. (laughs) Why didn't you say that, man? Those father, everybody. It's a hustle. To the moon! I don't know if you caught it, Paul. He was great. So there is just a lot to unpack here. Let me bring you in, Paul, because the first thing that comes to mind when I heard about, uh, you know, this this SpaceX announcement and knowing what happened to Dogecoin during Saturday, Saturday Night Live, the cryptocurrency tanked during it. Can we take any of this seriously? Because I feel like I'm, I'm on a seesaw at this point when it comes to, to Dogecoin. Yeah, I I would argue that, no, you can't really take it seriously, Allison. And to be fair to Elon Musk, I can't believe I'm about to say this. People do need to realize that when he was doing that appearance on Weekend Update, he was playing a character who was a crypto evangelist, obviously, you know, a thinly veiled version of Elon Musk himself. So I don't know if we can really say definitively that Elon Musk thinks that Dogecoin is a hustle, even though those were the words that were put into his mouth by the SNL writers, but it is clearly not a cryptocurrency that has as much utility as Bitcoin and Ethereum, which by the way, Ethereum now over $4,000, all time high. Those are the two cryptos that if people 
seriously want to invest in this space need to be looking at. Dogecoin, I still think it's great for laughs on uh, you know Saturday Night Live, but not for your portfolio, most likely. Yeah, I mean, and you mentioned Ethereum just passing the 4,000 mark. You know, there's at least a little bit of understanding why, you know, Ether and Bitcoin are, are the hot ones because they're in limited quantity, right? Explain to us why, though, Ether is today really surging, though, versus Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, Ether has really just taken off in the past month or so in conjunction with the increased demand for these non-fungible token sales, the Ether blockchain really is the backbone for a lot of these NFT transactions that have taken the collectibles world by storm. We've heard about all of these pieces of art that are you know, being sold as tokens. You have uh, sporting uh, companies all getting in. Tom Brady is investing in an NFT company. Tops is going public again through a SPAC the other uh, very popular mechanism on Wall Street these days. Uh, and, you know, Tops is getting into, you know, the NFT business as well with, uh, you know, digital baseball cards. There's a company, NBA Top Shot, that, you know, has an incredibly high valuation because of its, you know, uh, presence with uh, basketball NFTs. So there is a there there, if you will. I just don't see what the there is with Dogecoin, even though you have SpaceX announcing that there is this company in Canada that's going to be paying for a uh, payload on a, a SpaceX rocket to the moon in Dogecoin. Yes, that's great. But again, you have to take it with a grain of salt because this is an Elon Musk company doing this. When you start to see big businesses outside of Elon Musk start to accept Dogecoin, then I'll start taking it maybe a little bit more seriously. But you're not seeing Goldman Sachs doing anything in Dogecoin as of yet. Yeah, but we are seeing lots of movement with Bitcoin at the moment. Uh, good points. Paula Monica, thank you. And we'll be talking more about Elon Musk's performance on Saturday Night Live. That is going to come later on in this hour. So stick around. A final decision on hosting the Tokyo Olympics will be up to the International Olympic Committee. The country's prime minister clarified who will have the final say. According to one newspaper poll, almost 60 percent of people in Japan think the games, which are scheduled to start on July 23rd, should be canceled, like Essig reports from Tokyo. The Olympics are set to take place in less than three months, but despite the daily case count nationwide increasing, the number of patients with serious symptoms continuing to break records, and with several prefixtures including Tokyo under an extended state of emergency order, it seems Olympic organizers are trying to do everything possible to keep the games on track for this summer. And according to Japan's Prime Minister, the decision whether or not to hold the Olympics isn't up to him. He said so on Monday during a lower house session. I've never put the Olympics first. My priority has been to protect the lives and health of the Japanese population. The IOC has already made a decision to hold the Games and notified countries as such. And it's worth noting that the IOC is a nonprofit which generates 90% of its revenue from the Summer and Winter Games. Even with no overseas spectators, the broadcasting rights are a big moneymaker for them. So clearly, the financial stakes here are enormously high and the IOC will be doing everything it possibly can to make sure the Games go ahead. Here's IOC Vice President over the weekend. We're implementing those countermeasures. You've read the playbook. You can, you can see those. They have all been... Um, countermeasures predicated on there being no vaccine, so that situation's improved. The games are going ahead. 
IOC President Thomas Bach was scheduled to arrive in Japan early next week, but because of the extended state of emergency order, his visit has been postponed. And regarding vaccinations, here in Japan, less than 1% of the population has been fully vaccinated, which is a big point of concern for infectious disease specialists. Blake Essig, CNN, Tokyo. And these are the stories making headlines around the world. Russian authorities have reportedly found a missing doctor who used to lead the Siberian hospital that treated Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny. State media report he was located in good condition in a forest where he was last seen on Friday and is thanking everyone for the search. China is defending its space program after debris from its largest rocket returned to Earth without harming anyone. For days, experts were worried about where the rocket would land and criticized Beijing for allowing it to free fall. The U.S. says China's actions were irresponsible and posed a safety risk to many. Still to come on First Move, the U.K. emerges from lockdown. The prime minister set to confirm that bans on hugs, indoor pints of beer and much more will be lifted on May 17th. And more from Musk. The billionaire founder of Tesla reveals he has Asperger's. We'll get more details on his Saturday Night Live appearance. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick, live from New York, where it's still looking like a mixed start to the trading week with tech stocks under pressure. A busy week ahead for financial markets with key earnings due from Disney, Alibaba, Airbnb, and other big names. U.S. and Chinese inflation data, that will all be released as well. Investors increasingly concerned that a recovering global economy will worsen parts and commodity shortages and trigger sustained and not just transitory inflation. Copper rallying to fresh all-time highs today. Silver and platinum also up around 1%. Iron ore is surging to fresh records, too. Lumber continues to advance. That's up more than 93% so far this year. Joining me is Jeffrey Kleintop. He's the Senior Vice President and Chief Global Investment Strategist at Charles Schwab, and he joins me live. Great to meet you. Thanks for for having me on. Great to be with you. So I want to start with this pipeline shutdown, the Colonial Pipeline shutdown. Uh, We, of course, are seeing futures contracts uh, mostly higher uh, with this major cyber attack. Cyber attack. What do you think a prolonged disruption will mean for gasoline and oil futures? Could we see a crisis in the making here? You know, we've got soaring commodity prices and supply constraints, stalling production, and now the prospect for summertime lines at gas stations is easy to make connections to like a 1970s style stagflation environment, but the market's not falling for it. And I don't think we're going to see that unfold. The pipeline problems are responsible for probably some of the energy sector strength today that we're likely to see and seeing in Europe. But this event, much like the payroll missed on Friday, hasn't changed the trend in the markets. The energy sector continues to outperform as it has all year on prospects for reflation, not stagflation. Now, there could be some impacts on flights. I know there are some East Coast airports at risk of limited supplies of jet fuel uh, into next week, but there might not be much lingering impact if the pipeline can be restarted soon. Are you also keeping an eye on supply constraints in Europe? 
Yeah, th this is a, another big issue. Look, semiconductors are probably the ones that gather a lot of attention, uh, lumber as well as you just, just mentioned, soaring lumber prices. But you know, it's, it's everything plastic. Cardboard boxes are in short supply. Actual uh, weeks of supply of container board and liner board used to make boxes to package and ship almost everything is at the lowest number since I've been able to track them back 30 years. So this really suggests that there are really tight constraints around the world, and that is likely pushing up prices here in the near term. But I think with the combination of incredible stimulus that we're seeing in the U.S. and now rolling out soon in Europe, combined with the return of the service sector, particularly in Europe with the reopenings, that should help to lift some of these pressures brought about by these tight supplies. Let's turn to stocks for a moment. I want to hear what you're watching for the week. I know I'm going to be looking at a key test for the market on Wednesday uh, with the release of CPI inflation data. Yeah, that's probably those are probably the biggest numbers for the week. And certainly on a year-over-year -year basis, we're going to look at some big numbers there. I think what's in, most important to, to look at in, in that data is to watch what's happening with uh, a lot of the components tied to um, uh, consumer staples and, and these these types of elements that I think that um, that have been in uh, that have been in high demand for some time. Obviously, we're going to see a big snapback in some of the services components, but some of those staples components I think will be interesting here and abroad. So yeah, definitely keep an eye on those CPI numbers. It's interesting that Friday's payroll miss didn't bring down. Uh, didn't bring down bond yields. And, and so a surprise here on the upside on the CPI could further push yields to the upside. You know, that miss on the jobs report didn't really affect the market. We are seeing seeing the market shrug that off. Do you think it was a, a one-off? And, and why do you think there was such a big miss there? Well, um, I, you know, it's super hard, I think, probably to predict payroll numbers right now, given the seasonal adjustments. Uh, seasonal adjustment was massive and uh, and so many other things going on. I think the market's interpretation of the payrolls miss was revealing though. The biggest takeaway was a weaker dollar. That remains in a downtrend. Interesting that interest rates kind of round tripped and 700,000 payroll miss can't push rates lower. What can? So that trend continues higher supporting financials, which is another, another I think, leadership group today. And I'm also interested growth didn't outperform value despite the miss. All these trends are firmly in place, it seems, unable to be shaken, even by what was a pretty big miss. How much are buybacks playing a role in what we're seeing uh, in the action in the markets? Yeah, really interesting. So firms that have announced a new share repurchase program are outperforming those that have not by a wide margin and by the overall market. And this is increasingly uh, been a driving factor in the markets, I think, in both in the U.S. and in Europe. <clears throat> and it's something we saw last for years coming out of the last economic downturn in 08 and 09. Buybacks outperformed 2010 through 2014. We're at a similar point in the economic cycle now. So this emerging trend could be important. And it's one of quality companies. We generally associate buybacks with firms that have strong balance sheets and good cash flow, as opposed to some of those zombie companies with no earnings that have been rising lately in the small cap indices that have garnered a lot of attention. So this suggests you can find out performance in companies that also have good fundamentals. So an important theme to keep an eye out for. Very quickly, what should investors do about tech? We have seen a run up just lately. Uh, does that mean investors should just cash out of big tech or stay in it? I think you should look beyond tech. I think you want to look at financials, energy, even healthcare for growth in this cycle. Tech was the leader of the last cycle. Whenever we start a new economic cycle, there's always new leadership. It's time to move on. All right. Jeffrey Kleintop, Senior Vice President and Chief Global Investment Strategist at Charles Schwab. Great talking with you. Thanks for your time. The opening bell on Wall Street. That's next.
Coca-Cola, Euro-Pacific partners, you see there ringing the opening bell at the New York Stock Exchange. Today, it looks like the exchange may be a little more crowded than usual because they're lifting some of their COVID-19 restrictions. That will allow more traders to return to work on the floor, and even uh, some traders will be allowed to remove their masks when they're seated at their workstations. And as expected, we've got a mixed start to the trading day uh, with the Dow and the S&P 500 close to record highs. The energy sector remains in focus as investors monitor key efforts uh, to get an oil pipeline back online after a weekend cyber attack. Nervousness over the attack is helping drive global oil prices higher. The incident highlighting once again the threat that cyber attacks pose to businesses and critical infrastructure. Notable moves today in crypto land. Ethereum rising to new records. The second biggest cryptocurrency is pushing past the $4,000 mark for the very first time, and it's up more than 6%. COVID vaccine maker BioNTech is rallying in German trading, too, after posting better-than-expected first-quarter results. The company also assuring us that its vaccine still protects against variants. It sees no need for booster shots just yet. India's daily COVID-19 cases falling below 400,000 for the first time in five days, but still over 366,000 new infections reported in just one day. More states are now imposing restrictions across the country. Our Sam Kiley is live for us in New Delhi with the latest. Sam, great to see you. You know, uh, it's, it's relief to hear the numbers going down a little bit, but you can't help but hear the calls growing louder for a nationwide lockdown there to happen uh, for anywhere from two to four weeks. What's the likelihood that a, a true lockdown will happen to get control of what's happening in India? It's going to be very interesting indeed, Alison, to see whether Prime Minister Narendra Modi does heed those calls, which have now been going on for more than a couple of weeks uh, and indeed uh, began in early April when scientists looking at Indian scientists modeling what they thought was likely to be the shape of the COVID curve come April, the second wave. They underestimated daily infections by a factor of about three times. Uh, but nonetheless, they were suggesting that the central government ought to do something to tighten things up because it had so slackened things back in January when Mr Modi declared victory over the COVID pandemic. Now we're seeing a number of states, uh, to a greater or lesser extent, locking down uh, I've just come from uh, a state where they, they, from Gujarat state, where they locked down almost entirely uh, recently, shuttered shops, uh, most, only the most essential services being allowed to continue. Here in Delhi, there's been a greater lockdown. But what there isn't is a national effort, a sense that this is a national problem, as it was during the first uh, stages of the pandemic, when India really was pretty effectively locked down, notwithstanding the very large movements of um, migratory labour back to their home areas. But now the, the science is firmly behind locking down, whatever the political consequences and economic consequences may be for Mr Modi and the country that he presides over, Alison. Seb, are you seeing international aid arriving there? And if so, um, you know, what kinds of equipment are you seeing get there? Yeah, a lot of international aid has been arriving steadily over the last 10 days. The Brits were the first with international aid. The Americans have given uh, some $100 million or are giving $100 million worth. It varies enormously, really a kind of reactive 
uh, gesture sometimes from relatively small countries, a few, a few dozen uh, oxygen bottles right through to oxygen production plants, particularly coming from France and Germany uh, and other countries. It's the production and delivery of oxygen which has really been the issue here and arguably that is what has perhaps artificially driven up the death toll here during this second wave is that people who might have survived otherwise had they had access to that basic hospital commodity of O2 we're not getting it. We're still seeing uh, acute shortages in many of the cities, but the Indian government and indeed local administration are beginning to get it flowing, not least because of these foreign donations. But the donations really are no match for the overwhelming numbers here. You know, if you're getting an extra 400,000 or so new patients every day, you're looking at uh, many hundreds of thousands of people every day needing oxygen. That is a huge amount of consumption that only the central government really can provide. But certainly of international aid has been arriving. Sam, what's the sentiment that you're hearing about how uh, the Prime Minister, Prime Minister Modi, is handling the situation there, the dire situation? <clears throat> well, first of all is the issue of blame. Now, privately, uh, epidemiologists, doctors in particular, ordinary people on the streets will absolutely blame uh, the Modi government, and particularly what, in the, with the benefit of hindsight, was that premature declaration of victory over the COVID pandemic. Remember, this is ahead of a vaccination campaign, ahead of any scientific evidence that herd immunity had been reached. But on top of that, scientists also point out there are a number of other factors that have contributed. One is that perhaps the very high levels of infections in the past did not translate into high levels of natural immunity. Uh, secondly, that the new variants of this uh, uh, um, virus, particularly the British variant, is more transmissible and that has had a knock-on effect. But also, above all, uh, the loosening of uh, legislation here that meant that people were able or encouraged to go to political rallies, sporting events uh, and religious, particularly Hindu cultural religious events that uh, were all super spreader events now the pressure is on Mr. Modi to try and uh, get a grip on it. Uh, at the moment, he seems to be more spinning the idea that things are going to kind of uh, sort themselves out more than taking very uh, direct action in earnest. He's not taking a personal leadership, in short. Okay, Sam, Sam Carley, thanks so much for your reporting. And as India struggles with the catastrophic surge of COVID cases, FedEx is jumping in to help by delivering critical medical supplies and equipment to the country. Joining us now, FedEx Chief Operating Officer Raj Subramanian. He is live from FedEx headquarters in Memphis, Tennessee. Great to see you. Good to see you, Allison, and thank you for having me on your program. And you are leading the charge uh, at FedEx, taking huge steps to deliver critical medical supplies and equipment during this humanitarian crisis that's happening there. Talk to me about what you've seen as the big, biggest need for India. I know that Sam talked about oxygen. I want to hear more about what FedEx is supplying as well. Well, it is oxygen, and that's exactly right. Uh, we have been coordinating with the uh, Indian government authorities, and uh, the need of the hour is oxygen. So that's, you know, we're moving a lot of things. Uh, we, you know, we have, we're, we are uniquely capable of helping because we fly 40 times a week in and out of uh, India. And in addition to that, uh, we just flew in on Sunday morning, um, uh, landed at 6.15 uh, 
uh, a FedEx donated 777 charter carrying 3,400 oxygen concentrators and other critical medic medical equipment. I was just on the phone an hour ago with our head of operations in India, and he said that it went very, very smoothly. It was cleared in 25 minutes, loaded onto 20 trucks, and on it went. So we have, uh, over the last week or so, delivered more than 17,000 oxygen concentrators and uh, other critical relief equipment, and much more to come. This is a huge undertaking, clearly, and one that is filling a lot of your time. But I understand this is a situation that hits home for you as well. Talk to me about why this is so personal for you. Well, it is personal because of, um, you know, I have family members and I have friends uh, who have been impacted by the COVID-19. But look, this is about uh, uh, FedEx trying to help. And any time that there is, uh, you know, a crisis of such magnitude, uh, it's because, uh, you know, of our unique physical capabilities and network that we are able to help. And, you know, if your neighbor's house is on fire and you are the one with the hose, you run to help. That's kind of what we're doing. You know, there are a lot of questions focusing on, you know, how India, which is home to the, the world's biggest vaccine manufacturer, got to this point in the first place. And uh, vaccine supplies, they still remain an issue. And only 2% of India's total population has been vaccinated. Can you uh, maybe translate what's going on here? Why India is so slow to uh, respond? Well, you know, it's very uh, difficult for me to speculate on what what might what might be or might not be. Our expertise is in moving things, and you talked about vaccines. That's you know we have we are in fact very very proud of the role that we played in moving vaccines in America. For example, we have moved almost 200 million vaccines uh, in, in this country, and we are ready to do it on a global basis. We already move in across international borders, and when we are when the vaccines are ready to be moved to India, we will 100 percent do so. And that that's what that's what we can do. Uh, in fact, uh, I, as I'm also pleased to announce to you today that we are going to donate another FedEx Triple Seven Charter that's going to fly this week, and it's going to go from Newark to Delhi once again, carrying very critical medical supplies and mostly oxygen concentrators. And as you have these amazing relief missions heading there, what kind of response are you hearing from the folks in India? What's, you know, tell me about the feedback that you're getting. Yeah, I think it's been very positive. And from that, you know, I think, you know, one of the, some, there's a sense of mission, mission in FedEx about this is who we are and what we do. Um, so, again, I talked to the head of operations. Despite the tough situation, the morale of the FedEx employee base is quite high, you know, it's, uh, they're, they're, you know, we are delivering on a mission. Um, uh, the, my con- conversations with the Indian ambassador, uh, you know, uh, my, the head of uh, the folks working on the ground dealing with the local authorities have, have been very cooperative and the process has been streamlined. And so, yeah, it's a very grim situation, of course. Uh, again, we are doing everything we can do to help and we'll leave no stone unturned. Well, you certainly are doing a lot uh, through FedEx, of course. Uh, Raj Subramanian, thanks so much for your time and thanks for all you're doing for the people in India. FedEx Chief Operating Officer, thanks for your time. Thank you. Coming up on First Move, people in England gearing up for more freedom as the government is set to announce further easing to COVID restrictions. That story coming up next.
Welcome back. I'm Alison Kosick. More signs of a gradual return to normalcy in England. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson is set to announce a further easing of COVID restrictions. Cyril Vanier is live for us in London with the latest. Cyril, great to see you. So uh, the announcement coming in the next few hours. What are we expecting to hear? Yeah, absolutely. We are expected to hear that stage one of the state, I beg your pardon, stage three of the easing of lockdown restrictions here in England will go ahead as planned next week. What the government has done, there was a strict lockdown at the beginning of the year. And then when numbers, infection rates started falling, they said, we are going to ease these restrictions, but very, very carefully and very gradually. Every five weeks, there are going to be increasing freedoms, increasing easing of restrictions. It's going to be stage three that's going to start next week. That's what will be announced a little later. And stage three means what? It means that up to 30 people can now meet outdoors. Up to six people can meet indoors. It means that restaurants can fully reopen. It's been just outdoor seating for the last few weeks. It means that uh, cinemas, theaters, Uh, Museums can reopen, large events can reopen as well, even though there is going to be a limit on the number of of people who can attend. And foreign holidays will be possible again. They've actually been outlawed, believe it or not, over the last few months. And Alison, what is so fascinating about this is that the UK went from being pretty much worst in class with one of the worst COVID death rates in the world per capita earlier this year, 60,000 cases a day at the peak of the third wave to now being almost best in class, one to 2,000 cases a day. And that is why they're able to hit their targets and ease restrictions every few weeks. They have a third of adults who are fully vaccinated already and many more who have received at least one dose. And this is the lowest circulation of the virus that they've had since uh, September. So then what was the trick here? How did England go from the worst situation to the, the loosening of restrictions yeah. right now? Are they crediting uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson for this? Yeah, what lessons can be learned? That's a great question. I think really it's two things. Strict lockdown that lasted a long time and that was imposed at the very end of last year, beginning of this year, and very successful vaccination campaign. The vaccination, really, it's one of the best in the world uh, on a par with countries like Israel. The U.S. also moving very quickly, as we know. The reason they've been so successful is that they invested early in a vaccine that was successful. At the time, of course, it was a gamble. It was the Oxford vaccine that we now know as the AstraZeneca vaccine, which was one of the first to be uh, invented. Then they approved it in record time. They were very efficient in terms of logistics at scaling up the vaccination, and they prioritized first doses. So that gave more adults partial immunity quickly. So has the lifting of restrictions gotten a little bit confusing, you know, applying the rules to England or Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland? Um, how, are, how, are, how are folks, you know, you know, walking through the differences there? Yeah, that's a very good point. And, you know, that's obviously part of the makeup of the United Kingdom is that some rules, depending on what you're talking about, will only apply to the, the, the country that you're in, England versus Wales versus Scotland, et cetera, et cetera. So these rules that I've just talked about, they apply to England and devolved governments um, have the authority to set their own rules. So they are coming out of lockdown at their own pace. But look, depending on where you live, you know this. So obviously, you know, you read the information that concerns you. So there, while there was some confusion in the early days when Boris Johnson was announcing rules that changed frequently that were difficult to understand, 
What's really worked well with this plan of lifting restrictions incrementally every five weeks is that it's very predictable. And that's what has made things smooth. People knew what was coming and when it was coming, Allison. Gave someone, giving them something to look forward to for sure. Ciro Vanye in London, thanks so much. And staying in London, we're monitoring rescue efforts to free a whale stranded in the river, River Thames. Uh, rescuers had been um, housing the whale uh, while it was stuck. It was finally moved overnight, but has not found safety and is still stuck uh, in the open water. Officials believe it's a small minke whale, about three meters or almost 10 feet long. Still to come, Dogecoin, Twitter, jokes and a big revelation. We review Elon Musk's performance as a late night guest host. Okay, we've assessed how Elon Musk hosting Saturday Night Live affected Dogecoin. Now let's look at how successful Musk was as a host in general. Expectations were running high before this episode, and the eccentric billionaire, he talked about some of the controversies he's notorious for. He's also made this revelation. I'm actually making history tonight as the first person with Asperger's to host SNL. At least the first to admit it. <laughs> so I won't make a lot of eye contact with the cast tonight. <laughs> but alright, I'm pretty good at running human in emulation mode. That was the first time Musk revealed he has Asperger's, although some people pointed out he was not the first SNL host with the syndrome. Frank Pallotta is with us now to assess the Musk episode from a media perspective. Great to see you, Frank. You know, in the likability of corner i certainly he certainly won me over with his honesty right there from the get-go yeah i mean going into the show there was a lot of anticipation a lot of buzz and obviously some controversy since elon has said and done things in the past that has been controversial but i watch snl every single saturday because i cover it every single saturday and i have to say he did a fine job i mean snl's not really known for going into the business or financial or tech world they've had a few guests that have been kind of weird in the past like george steinburner the owner of the yankees or even steve forbes but elon did fine and i think that the sketches really kind of worked for him especially one where he kind of played the Nintendo Wario and his wife Grimes was Princess Peach. And it was a fun show. I mean, could he have been better? Yes, but he's not a comedian. He's not somebody who's in the spotlight all the time. But for what he is, he did pretty well. And I think ultimately everything was much ado about nothing. He was just a standard, normal host. Yeah, but a lot wasn't known about him. All we really knew, he doesn't conduct many interviews. Um, He may be out there on Twitter, but many people think of him as, you know, very spontaneous and kind of quirky. What do you think his reputation is now, now that he's uh, done SNL? I mean, I think people who didn't know much about him got to see this side of him, which was the point. But I think overall, his however you felt about Elon Musk on Friday is likely how you feel about Elon Musk today. I don't know if SNL really changed the perception of him in a major way. I think it just introduced him to more people. But I think a lot of people were watching the show who may not know a lot about Elon Musk and kind of just walked away from it going like, okay, that was that was kind of weird. It was fun. But I mean, I, I guess I get it. And that's about it. I don't I don't think it really changes who he is to the people who really knows him. But it does introduce him to a whole new set of eyeballs. 
You know, he did join Endeavor Group Holdings, which is a, a media and entertainment conglomerate. I think it was about a month ago, and he's looking to join the board. You know, it, it just this sort of makes you wonder if this billionaire, by the way, it has bigger aspirations to, you know, be in the movies, be on TV, have his own show. Is that the realm that he could be moving into? I mean, he's already kind of in that realm. He's he has starred in multiple episodes uh, doing voice work on South Park. He was in an episode of The Simpsons. He was in Iron Man 2, which the story is, is that Tony Stark is kind of based on Elon Musk, maybe. I don't know if that's entirely true, but he's been movies and television shows. So this is definitely not completely new territory for him, but it is maybe a territory that he seemingly could be interested in getting more into. Whether there's a place for him is yet to be. But... It was interesting on Saturday night, which is the best you can do for SNL. Yeah, well, for what it's worth, I loved him in SNL. I thought he was really, really funny. It was fun to see that side of him. Frank Pallotta, great talking with you. Great to see you. And one last look at the markets. U.S. stocks are mixed as the trading week begins on Wall Street. The Dow is inching further into record territory and has just hit the milestone, uh, or did, of 35,000. Again, uh, the energy sector is rallying as workers try to get a massive U.S. pipeline back online after a cyber attack. Higher commodity prices are driving gains in mining and steel stocks today as well. Tech, as you can see, is pulling back by more than 1%. That's it for the show. Julie is back tomorrow. I'm Allison Kosick. Connect the World is next. Thanks for watching. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.